Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. My guest today is Namisha Parthasari, who's the co-founder of Aramse, a multifaceted coffee platform dedicated to bringing slower and more intentional thought to coffee drinking. Namisha and her husband Raghunath have a YouTube channel, a coffee subscription service that's based in India, and write a newsletter that highlights three exciting facts about coffee every week. In this episode, Namisha speaks about some of the themes that show up in her writing, how perceptions of coffee in India are influenced by relics of colonialism, and why the ubiquitous South Indian filter brewer hasn't shown up on specialty coffee shelves. You see baristas brewing with brewers of all sorts, but she rightly points out that the South Indian filter isn't often mentioned when we talk about brewing devices, even though it's in many homes. We're also going to talk a lot about flavor in this episode, and how some flavor notes we code as common are common only in a very narrow sense. I've talked about blueberries on this page a lot, and Namisha mentions that blueberries aren't as common in India, and likely not something many people would have as a flavor descriptor in their back pocket. Just a quick note about this episode. I had a hiccup with my main recording device, so my audio is a little fuzzy. I had to use my backup audio file. But this episode is too good not to air, and I found myself writing notes as I was transcribing. Just lots of scribbling was going on as I was transcribing this episode. So here's Namisha. I was wondering if you could just start by introducing yourself. Yes, of course. I'm Namisha Parthasarthi, and I'm the co-founder of Aramse, a company that we started, me and Raghunath started in early 2020. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? I did very much so. A lot more because of my grandmother who lived with us, and then my grandparents who we used to visit. My own parents didn't drink as much coffee, but it was around home all the time. At what point did coffee become the thing that you were going to do? Oh my gosh. For us and for me, it was, you know, it, it never sort of was like a decision that, oh, hey, you know what? I think I'm, I want to have a career in coffee. It's been such a roundabout route getting here. So I spent a majority of my career in finance. I was a trader at a hedge fund and at an investment bank. And Raghunath, who I run the company with, you know, used to run a design firm. 
and we'd always talked about doing something together and doing something that felt more meaningful to us. And we took a month-long trip in South America for our honeymoon. And a lot of that time was actually like every day we'd begin each day. Okay, so where do we get a good cup of coffee? And it just became this like daily ritual. And then when we were figuring out, okay, what do we do after quitting our jobs and trying to do something very different, this became like an organic next step. So we started with like, oh, we're just brewing coffee at home. We're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. And then we were like spending so much time doing that. And we're like, oh, why don't we just do workshops around brewing coffee? And it sort of grew from there. So, so yeah, that's how it became a career. And I think for me personally, coffee has been so unique and special because when I used to trade markets, I used to, you know, a lot of it is obviously publicly traded markets. So I didn't do equities as much, but I did a lot of foreign exchange. I worked in emerging markets and then we also traded commodities. And so I always thought about things like coffee, gold, oil, all of these things from the other side. And then to see it from so sort of like more top down, but then to see it bottom up felt like I'd come full circle. So so coffee in that way is like really special to me and then to both of us, but that's how we began. How would you describe Aramse? Because I feel like you kind of do a little bit of everything. You have yeah. a YouTube <laughs> channel, you sell products, you have a subscription service, you write like a fair amount. So like, how do you describe what the goal of Aramse is? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the reason we do so, ma- so many things is because of how much we've had to adapt since we began. So we started Aramse as in-person workshops with for over half a day with people coming together and using no technology. So, you know, people would have to switch off their phones and kind of be immersed in in the process of coffee brewing. And that was maybe two months before COVID happened. And so Great we were timing. Like, well, yes, exactly. So we were like, well, so that model is like not going to work out. So we had to flip it on its head and be like, okay, we're going to go digital. But how do we kind of maintain some of the ethos that we started with, I don't know, bring it into the online world. And so we started doing the coffee subscription because we got a lot of requests on Instagram, especially during lockdown, being like, hey, where can I get good coffee? What coffee would you recommend? You know, I've been in, been stuck in India. Like, what, you know, what are good local roasters? I don't know anything about the landscape here and stuff like that. And so that became kind of like a very natural thing for us to do. You're absolutely right. It's basically three things. We do the subscription, which is India only. We do products. I would say Sophie and the coffee journal and cups. Those are like the three main products that we've done so far. And then we have the YouTube channel. So yes, it's three different verticals and we kind of use all three channels essentially to to try and tell like the story of coffee and like through a slightly different lens. Aramse actually means it's sort of like a Hindi phrase and people use it colloquially to say, you know, like slow down or do things with ease. And I think that's essentially like why we be- we started the whole company. We were like, okay, how do we slow down and be more intentional and meaningful about something as simple as this drink that we drink every day? So yeah, those are like the three channels that we use to promote that ethos, I guess. But yes, sometimes we find ourselves, you know, we feel like we're spread a little too thin. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're in any sort of content creation vertical I feel like that's easy to do you kind of look around and you're like I exist everywhere like there's yes, my face exactly. on YouTube there's my face there's my name on this and you're like how did this happen 
Yeah, everywhere and nowhere. That's what it feels like sometimes. We're like, we're not growing fast enough, but then we're like, okay, well, we need to be true to the name of our company. So slowly, right? And steadily. Yeah, right. No, I totally understand what that feels like. And maybe this is like more of a personal conversation that we can have later. But something I struggle with a lot is this idea of growth and like, should I be pursuing it? But I'm constantly told I should be. But I'm also yes. not necessarily into the idea of growing a lot. And I'm very critical of people who put growth kind of before any Front other. Incentive. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Because that's I mean, what that's the spirit of capitalism. And that's how people get forgotten. But I could like wax poetical about how capitalism is destroying how I feel about my productivity. But I do want to talk about what Ram's saying. I want to talk about some of those buckets of information that you sort of posited as like your three main goals. So you have the subscription service. And I was wondering if we could kind of talk a little bit about coffee in India specifically. I was reading some of the articles that you've written and something that you mentioned is India is the sixth largest producer of coffee, which I think is something if guests hear this, if people listening to this episode hear that information, they'd be like, oh, I didn't know that. And you acknowledge that as well in some of your writing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the landscape of coffee growing in India. And this will be a big question. So maybe we'll break it up as we kind of discuss it. But why do you think India's kind of been anonymous in the specialty coffee industry? Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised if people were surprised by that statistic. And I spent most of my life living outside of India. So, you know, it's only been three and something years that I've actually lived in India. And all of my time living outside, I would say I can count a handful of times where I saw India being listed as an origin on the menu of a coffee shop. And this is not necessarily specialty, although, you know, specialty is typically where you see origin countries being listed. And I think there's a few different reasons for this. I mean, I I think the biggest issue is just perception. So for some reason, India's sort of gotten stuck with this perception of, oh, you know, if you think about Indian coffee, there's like people think about monsoon Malabar, which is just one very specific processing method and not even anything to do with the actual coffee beans themselves. And then we just kind of got pigeonholed into this India equals monsoon Malabar. And that was maybe... Can you describe what that is for people who maybe have never heard that term? Yes. So legend has it, coffee beans were being transported by ship and they'd been left in a coffee bag in on the ship in very damp conditions for an excessively long period of time. And the resulting bean, which basically ended up having very, very little acidity, it had been like probably at the point of being slightly rotten, exposed to a ton of oxygen, created a very different flavor profile to what people had been used to. And so this process, which was a complete accident, was, you know, labeled monsoon Malabar and has been exclusively associated with Indian beans. And to be fair, this is, you know, well before this sort of quote unquote third wave of specialty came to be. And but then I think I think because of this historic association and then the combination of India not promoting its coffee on a standalone basis. So I think a lot of times like Indian coffees were just seen as an afterthought. So it's like, oh, this is gonna be a great base for your blend. This is a great export to Europe that roast coffee extremely dark because it's going to be great for espresso. So no one had really taken the time to tell the story of Indian coffee. And I think 
that's why we've kind of just remained anonymous. And by the time the specialty sort of movement picked up and third wave came about, I think Indian coffee was just seen as boring. It was basically like, hey, this thing has been around for a long time. Everyone who's in coffee as an exporter and importer knows in this very small circle that India makes coffee, but there's no real like new and exciting thing about it. So we're going to use it in blends. We're going to use it in this like overly dark roasted coffee that's in ground and sold and commoditized and sold. But this isn't like the special new fun thing that's come into the market that we're going to highlight as a single origin. There wasn't that many voices in India that took care to promote the story. And, and then there wasn't a lot of interest abroad. You know, the one last thing I would say about like Indian people talking about Indian coffee, I think there was a lot of like, I wouldn't say shame, maybe embarrassment. It's a big overhang of colonialism. When you feel like you need approval from the outside world, a lot of times the global north and the Western world in terms of validating what you have to offer. So I think you would see a lot of Indian people feel shy and afraid to kind of highlight the uniqueness of Indian coffee when you saw these very confident voices elsewhere highlighting coffees that were quite different in profile to what India had to offer. I think one of the overarching themes just in coffee discourse in general that can feel a little bit, not hard to grasp, but I think it's easy to grasp, but that can feel kind of like we're like a blanket statement is coffee is a product of colonialism. Like yes. <laughs> it's a thing that we talk about a lot in coffee, but I think your specific example really contextualizes how colonialism specifically affected coffee in India. And not to say that you gave like a complete answer. Cause we have like another thing that you've written in one of your articles is that 99% of farmers in India are smallholder farmers, but they account for less than 30% of the actual coffee that's being produced. Again, another relic of colonialism and the way that land is passed on. But going back to like the cultural implications, which I think are not as often talked about because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, colonialism happened and now it's gone. Bye. See you later. But we don't think about like the ramifications that exactly. colonialism has on the cultural ways in which we consume a thing. And I think it's really interesting that you point out that there's still this like need for acceptance on a global North spectrum, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, in, in so many different ways, right? I mean, it, it permeates into every aspect of our lives, like an Indian consumer, or even I'm guilty of this sometimes, like you don't question when something costs a specific amount when it's coming from, say it's like an American product. But then when it's a local product, you question it a lot more. We're not fully aware of it and to how much it's impacted us. And, you know, it's, of course, I wasn't around when, when India was under British rule and I'm three generations down, but it still makes such a big difference because everything is passed down from your grandparents to your parents. You buy into a lot of the culture and you kind of act in certain ways that you're not even fully aware of until you really kind of break it down and you're like, huh, why do I feel this way? Or, you know, for us, sometimes it's like now that we're trying to do that thing is like when we create a product and people start to question it, we're like, oh, interesting that, you know, this is some of the feedback that we get. And it's the same thing with coffee. You know, it's like, I think there's just a lack of confidence a lot of times when, you know, when I see maybe the previous generation of coffee professionals out of India, even currently, we look a lot for validation elsewhere. And it's it's just the sad reality of it. And I think people are aware of wanting to change it, but it's 
it's very much present. It's sort of like a spillover effect. It's not the immediate effect. It's like the aftermath of colonialism and how it kind of lingers. Yeah. One of the ways that it seems like you're trying to tackle that head on is through challenging perceptions of quality and flavor. So one of the ways that I became familiar with your work is through a video that you folks did with James Hoffman about challenging perceptions of what the flavor wheel is. So for folks who maybe don't know what a flavor wheel is, there's this like wheel, it's an actual wheel, and it has all these different flavor notes like berries, blah, this, that. And it's often used as a reference point for coffee professionals to evaluate quality. That being said, there are things on the flavor wheel that either don't grow everywhere. It's a very westernized version of what fruits and flavors are. There are things that don't grow everywhere. There are things that are prohibitively expensive. And then there are things that are coded as bad that wouldn't necessarily be bad in other in other cultural contexts. So I was wondering Absolutely. if you could talk a little bit about the video that you folks made and kind of how you've been specifically tackling the flavor wheel. Yes. I mean, I think your description of the flavor wheel was absolutely on point. And I think, you know, the flavor wheel was obviously intended to be an objective measure of flavor and quality, which I think in and of itself is problematic because something like flavor is just so subjective. If you look at the four quadrants, it's meant to be objective. But then when you have, say, like the bottom left quadrant, which has potential defects or undesirable notes like phenolic, which is obviously something that's undesirable, but then sort of nestled in between that, you have things like earthy and woody. And now in India, something like earthy isn't necessarily seen as a bad thing. A big part of like Indian cuisine is like making a few different states do this. They'll make like yogurt or curd. We call it locally here in mud pots. And the best part about that flavor is sort of like this muddy earthy flavor. And it's something that, you know, like a lot of people that enjoy Indian cuisine might love. And so from, you know, for someone like me or other people that, you know, are used to Indian cuisine, that's like a great flavor. If someone's like, oh, this tastes earthy, I don't think it's negative at all. But then you're kind of told when you're in specialty circles, especially in the global north, even though the flavor wheel is meant to be objective, it becomes sort of this like prescriptive shorthand for how to tell good coffees from bad coffee. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, earthy is not as desirable. You want something with like higher acidity. And then that brings me to the other point, which is, Yes, like what are the fruits that you find on the flavor wheel? Okay, in India, we have apple. I mean, you do get blueberry here, but it's extremely difficult to get. It's extremely expensive. The average Indian is not going to have strong associations with blueberry. It's not something we grow up eating a lot of in our like diet. And then we have a ton more tropical fruits, which obviously don't make its way onto the wheel. So in that sense, the wheel, even though it's supposed to be this very like balanced sort of like representation of flavor with four equal quadrants for someone in India and like the cuisine and and flavors we're used to here it's not balanced or equal at all we have you know we have so many more fruits that don't represent the flavors that we're used to we have a lot fewer of the the florals that may might find their way onto the flavor wheel and then things that are negative elsewhere are not necessarily negative here so I think the wheel 
you know, once it sort of made its way into the consumer market became very confusing. And it has been a bit of a confusing tool for people in the global south and, you know, and then more specifically in India, because it's like, how do I reconcile what I'm being told is like good coffee versus like the things that I actually enjoy. And I think there's two aspects to something like localizing something and why we would even think about doing it. One is obviously for the consumer when they think about flavors, how does how do we make it relatable to them and say, okay, you know what, if this coffee is amazing, maybe it reminds you of something like, I don't know, jackfruit, or we have an Indian gooseberry called amla or other Indian flavors so that the consumer feels included in this whole movement of specialty coffee. But I think the second thing, which would be even more amazing, if if we could realize even a little bit of this dream, I think that would basically have the maximum impact is from the producer side, which is so many producers in India. And I'm, sh- and I, and I'm pretty sure this is sort of reflective of other producing countries as well. Many farmers don't tend to drink coffee. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of Indian farmers will drink tea. So I think if if you can sort of bridge that gap and producers can have, a, you know, tools and vocabulary and the, the language to kind of talk about flavors in coffee too, I think that would be amazing in terms of localizing the flavor wheel because there's no way that, you know, if we talk about, I don't know, rose hip and blueberry that... Uh, a grower in the hills of Chikmagalur in India is going to find that relatable. It's interesting that you mention farmers in your answer because something else that you mentioned too is that a lot of coffee grown in India is consumed locally. So there is this like amazing opportunity for feedback, like really immediate feedback. And instead it seems like you're struggling to combat these like like westernized versions of what coffee should be. Yes, and, and and it's so interesting that you say that. So obviously a lot of India's like, you know, sort of highest quality coffee still gets exported. I think a lot of that has changed post-COVID. So a lot of the bigger estates in India that were sort of relying on a lot of export had to look to the local market during COVID to basically take a lot of their produce because supply chains were so destroyed. So India still exports a lot of coffee, but very rightly, there is a, a you know a massive domestic consumption that happens in the country as well. Typically, it was concentrated in the south of India historically because that's where coffee was grown. And the north of India drank a lot more tea. But this new wave of coffee or whatever, the new movement in coffee is especially amongst like millennials and the younger generation is sort of India wide. And I think that, like you said, there is a very strong feedback loop because yes, it might be concentrated amongst a very small handful of estates that can provide specialty coffee as it stands, but it still lays like a great foundation because we don't need to look elsewhere to kind of to to create this movement and drive the narrative. We can essentially have a blank slate when it comes to specialty. We can, we can completely, you know, create. You can do whatever you want. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's maybe just having the confidence to do so because, so I think, yes, we can do whatever we want, but then the Indian consumer is also watching James Hoffman's channel or Lance Hedrick's channel or knows who Morgan Eckroth is. So, so, you know, they're looking outside for all of this because there's so much information and they're looking Mm -hmm. outside for all of the cues around what is, happening and what is hot in coffee but then they have local coffee that they need to consume so I think that's sort of like the 
yeah, that's like the tussle that the Indian consumer faces, which is they want to be part of this like global movement and feel connected to people all around the world, which I think is amazing about coffee. But then they have this local produce that's quite different to maybe some of the coffees that other people are consuming. And it's how do we use the the language and the tools to kind of bond with other people elsewhere over it? But speaking of tools, like we're talking kind of like about more abstract tools like the internet, like Reddit forms, like looking at YouTube, but we're also talking about like concrete tools. And one of the tools that you folks have been focusing on is the South Indian filter and kind of finding ways to modernize that and bring that to consumers now. And something that I found really interesting, again, I'm going back to some of the things that you wrote, is you have this one quote that says, internationally, the South Indian filter is almost entirely unknown. Indian cultural exports long associated with ancient wisdom, the mystic and the holistic are romanticized in the West. And it seems like from the right from the writing that you've published, it seems like things in India kind of exist in these two either realms. It's like either we're trying to you're trying to like find these westernized versions of things or there's this like nostalgia culture. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that and like how that's kind of influenced the way that you think about the South Indian filter? Yes. Yeah, so the South Indian filter is, it's a very simple brewer. It's, it's usually available in India in stainless steel and brass. Essentially, it's a percolation brewer. You put coffee into a top chamber, you pour hot water onto it, and it drips very slowly into a collection chamber. And it, and it forms a concentrate. And in India, we call that a decoction. And then it's used very similarly to espresso, because people tend to then mix it with milk and make milk based drinks. Here, the drink that, that it's long been associated with is called filtered coffee. And it's basically boiling hot milk mixed in with the decoction, and then a lot of sugar, and then you froth the drink, and then you drink it. That's the drink, and then it's made with the South Indian filter. Now, the South Indian filter, I've done, I've tried, or we've tried to do so much research on the history, and it's nearly impossible to find out like how this thing even came about. We know that it's probably, you know, at least a hundred years old, or probably around a hundred years old, because like our grandmothers were brewing with this when they were like six years old or something. So we're like, okay, we can, we can kind of you know, do a little bit of like back of the envelope math. And we think maybe it's like 100 right. years old. But I think it's another reason or another overhang of like colonialism, because it's like nothing. When you had a country like India that was colonized, local history and culture and the preservation of it was not very important. And so when, you know, when you had locals drinking out of this filter, it was just not important enough to kind of preserve like the history of it or anything. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to find much about it. So, you know, it's it's something that Anyone who's grown up in South India, and me and Raghunath are both South Indian, so we've had it at home. You know, it's just always there. Even if people don't drink coffee, like my parents don't drink coffee, they're still going to have a South Indian filter at home. So it's kind of like this, you know, just like a South Indian home staple. And every home has their own recipe. Every home thinks that their recipe is the best recipe. And so, you know, when we kind of got into coffee, we were like, oh, we moved away from the South Indian filter to all these other different brewers that most people are familiar with. So, you know, whether it's like, we're doing pour overs or even espresso, but we never really looked at the South Indian filter in terms of in, in the context of specialty. And so we started exploring why is that? And a big reason for why that is, is because there isn't just one brewer that's the South Indian filter. You It comes in different sizes. It comes in different right. shapes. The holes are all over the place. But no one has ever really taken it upon themselves to kind of standardize or modernize it because of 
exactly like what you said, like things from India kind of tend to fall into two categories. You know, I think people abroad, like, you know, if you look at the West or people in the global North, they kind of have this view that India is like this faraway land. And, you know, you think of it in the context of like eat, pray, love. It's a place where people find themselves. There's so much richness. Oh, the colors and the smells. And then it just puts a lot of pressure on like Indian products to kind of basically like they need to do so much more than just like brew you a cup of coffee yeah exactly they just can't be it kind of puts india in these or indian products it kind of boxes them into essentially being tools for nostalgia so Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh i have this really cute little brewer that i got from india that's going to be on my counter but i'm never really going to make a serious cup of coffee out of it and i think that's what we really wanted to challenge because you know it's like for example if you took the south indian filter and just like just shed it of all its baggage. Hypothetically, you gave it to someone from the global north and you're like, hey, why don't you try and market this? You know, we could be like, hey, this is the original no bypass brewer. It doesn't use any paper filters. It doesn't create a lot of waste. You don't need electricity. It's very durable. You don't need to buy a ton of them. One will likely last you a lifetime. It brews you a concentrate that's akin to espresso. But none of those stories are told. It's made using sustainable materials. It's sort of all about like, oh, my grandmother's recipe. I want to recreate that. It's about, you know, like, oh, I got this thing from this small little shop in India. And so I think, and and a lot of it is manufactured nostalgia. So I think, because we saw the South Indian filter in the context of specialty, especially in India, none of the specialty cafes serve a South Indian filter. You have to go to like, you know, street side cafes or these older food and I don't know how I would describe them, like sort of like takeaway or like fast food, but local fast food restaurants, yeah. you know, so you think of like street food and, 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 and getting in from these tiny little shops, but no specialty cafes in India serve it. And we're like, why? It absolutely deserves a space in it. And we'd love to change that or make that happen. So that's what we're trying. No, you made so many good points in that because like, because you're right. Like anytime there's like a cultural export that's not from like the global North, we tend to like box it into this like tool for nostalgia. And we, I think in turn, that makes us not take it seriously as a viable item. Like you were saying, if you go to a third wave shop in India, no one's brewing on the South Indian filter um, because it's not taken seriously, which is interesting because I think going back to like the flavor wheel conversation, and I think there's an interesting dichotomy to be had here to explore is that so much of what coffee is and so much of how we view coffee comes from us. It comes from the people who have coffee shops who are prominent in the industry. And again, I'm going back to something that you wrote about, you, you wrote this article, I keep referring to, to two, two articles that you wrote. One you wrote for Sprudge about the South Indian filter, but another one you wrote for the Specialty Coffee Association, the SCA, about kind of the state of coffee in India and kind of these overarching themes. And one of the things that you did was you quoted Tim Wendelboe, who is a very prominent figure in the coffee industry, owns a very like well-respected and well-regarded roastery in Norway. And something that you quoted him as saying is that the things that we want from coffee, the things that we think we want from coffee, or the things that we have created a consumer market for, aren't consumers telling us that they want that. It's the tastemakers. 
saying that this is the thing that they're interested in. And not to say they're not doing anything bad. I'm, I'm not saying this is bad at all. I'm just saying that like these are tastemakers who have said like these are things that we like and we want to share them with you. So we actually have a ton of power in crafting like the world around us. So sometimes I think it's it's almost giving up when we say like other things aren't worth that regard when we say that like oh this this totally. this this relic is like not worthy of being part of this cultural discourse because like consumers aren't demanding it or the flavor of woody is not worth it to us because like consumers aren't demanding it but it's like no we're the tastemakers like we can talk to people about why this is desirable or like why this is good and maybe it doesn't catch on sure but like totally. at least we can try and i wonder like for you as you're working in this space, like how do you see yourself, I guess, as a tastemaker and a change maker at the same time? It's a great question. And I think like you very rightly pointed out, none of what he said is a bad thing. In fact, it should be encouraging or sort of like motivating to 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 the rest of us to feel like, okay, you know what, we we have the power to do that too. When I when I think about India or Indian coffee, I think a lot of it has just been a lack of confidence. We're getting all these signals from elsewhere that are saying a coffee needs to taste like this, a coffee needs to taste like that for it to be considered good. Our coffee may not fit into all of those categories. How do we, you know, can we make it happen? Are we just not specialty? Should we just relegate ourselves to, okay, you know what, we're going to be like this anonymous bog standard run of the mill just be foundation for like an espresso blend in in a big cafe but i think the reality is if you have people that can tell a compelling story and embrace the fact that preferences widely vary i can guarantee tim wendelbo's diet growing up and mine were extremely different if not polar opposites so it's not surprising that maybe our preferences in coffee might be similarly different. And so then to say that there's going to be this one standard amazing flavor when it comes to coffee, I feel like it's just, I don't know, it's it's a fool's endeavor. Like it's like there's, yeah. you know, if we have all of this variance in food, there's going to be all of this variance in preference in coffee. And I think the one amazing thing that, that you know, COVID did and also India sort of like very punitive import restrictions has done for like Indian specialty is it's created this entire market of consumers that are looking for specialty that that have to only drink Indian specialty and it's created a market for just this wild amount of like processing methods I know that this is happening elsewhere as well but it's almost as if Indian specialty completely sidestepped the washed coffee seeking out clarity and a clean cup phase entirely like we've gone straight from like we you know in the north we didn't really drink coffee in the south we had this very commoditized coffee to suddenly like there's this growing specialty market and everyone is talking about this 72 hour champagne fermentation and pineapple fermentation blah 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 because it's just kind of like well this is what appeals to like the indian palate and so we've been restricted to drinking Indian coffee and then we've kind of been cocooned during COVID so we're just going to like explode with this really wild coffee so 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 I think that's been really cool to see it's very encouraging yes exactly and I think that's like it's silly to ever have anything prescriptive when it comes to flavor because I cannot imagine that flavor 
is anything beyond like a cultural construct like it just in terms of preference because so many things are acquired so many tastes are acquired so when we see people around us or people whose opinions we value consume something it automatically makes us want to like those things even if we may not inherently like them so to kind of say like there is this thing that is like great coffee in terms of like this is the best flavor to find in coffee just feels i don't know for lack of a better word silly but then also just a fallacy yeah exactly and it's interesting that we use flavor as an indicator of quality in this way when we have such a myopic understanding yes. of flavor and it also doesn't seem to line up with the reality of what coffee is and what coffee will be in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Totally. Talking about climate change, talking about places where we will likely no longer grow coffee anymore and shifting to places we will likely grow a lot more coffee, like India. Like we will probably totally. be seeing a lot more coffee in India, in China, in Vietnam. And we don't have a great lexicon for talking about coffees from any of these regions, really. And it seems yes. like we're not, we're holding on to this one idea of quality. It seems so confusing to me. Like we define quality so narrowly. Yes. But to, but to no one's service, to nobody's benefit. Absolutely. And I think even as a consumer, it's so confusing because when you conflate flavor and quality, as a consumer, it becomes very problematic because you're making assumptions when someone talks about high quality coffee as a consumer you might be making assumptions about the conditions under which that coffee was right. grown all of these things but then actually a lot of the times what we're talking about when we're talking about quality is actually just flavor which is exactly like you said is so myopic and can create you know massive problems um and it helps no one because yes the landscape of coffee is changing so dramatically that we just have to have the tools to think about it more broadly. And I know the SEA put out this white paper on looking at redefining what specialty is and, and kind of looking at it in a more, in a broader sense, but it's tastemakers and influencers everywhere. It isn't like coffee culture is being dictated, you know, just by the SEA. So, so I think when we think about quality to conflate it with flavor, just it feels like something that we need to stop doing. And I'm always trying to think about like vocabulary that we can use to to kind of make these distinctions, uh, because I think they're important distinctions to make. Yeah, I agree. I agree that conflating flavor with quality is incredibly confusing and just seems to serve nobody in the specialty industry, especially when like the goal of specialty coffee is ideally, like you were saying, to make people's lives better. Like, I think that that's like yes. a new definition of specialty coffee. I think beyond like, it has to be a certain score or whatever. It's like, it should impact everybody along the supply chain better. But yes. if we define quality as just like a, a metric of flavor, then we make a lot of assumptions. Like you were saying, especially for consumers who we asked to do a lot of work, we shouldn't be asking them to do this much work. Totally. Um, yeah. We make all of these like assumptions about what quality actually means. But for so, for so much of coffee that is bought and sold, quality is really only a metric of flavor. As someone who used to be just a consumer of specialty, if I saw, you know, an 80 plus on a bag and someone said, Hey, this is, you know, this is or 85 plus, and this is specialty. 
as a consumer, I'm sort of bombarded with so much information that I'm like, oh, if someone's saying this is specialty, I don't think of, the number may not mean a lot to me, but I'm not thinking, oh, this bag is just, you know, a great cup score, which means it tastes really good. I'm trying to, I'm then making assumptions that, you know, if they're calling mm-hmm. the specialty, maybe it was grown under really, you know, great conditions. Maybe the farmer's lives have been improved. Maybe, you know, they're getting a lot more money than they would otherwise. Maybe this is like biodiversity friendly, all of these things. But, but I, you know, as a consumer, I would imagine it's a much more holistic approach. And that's what I would be hoping as a consumer. But then, you know, the reality is it hasn't been like that. It's just been, oh, this cup tastes great. And so it it's sort of like this high quality cup. But right. anyway. Right. And we can make quality more diverse. We can make quality a more diverse metric. As we're wrapping up this conversation, I was wondering, is there anything that you want people to know about you or about the work that you're doing or about Aramse in general? Oh, that's a great question. And maybe one I haven't thought about. Um, Coffee is the way through which we want to create like a meaningful life for ourselves and try and make an impact on the people around us. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. That was Namisha Parthasari. You can find Aramse in a lot of different places. Like we mentioned in this episode, you can find them on YouTube. You can go to their website or you can go to their newsletter, which is Aramse, A-R-A-M-S-E dot substack dot com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week.